Hey everyone, welcome to the Grief Informed Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Garcia, and this is a place where I bring you authentic conversations with people who are willing to share their journey through seasons of grief. No matter your cultural upbringing, societal conditioning, or faith practice, grief affects us all. Whether you're dealing with a loss, a diagnosis, a broken heart, or the everyday stressors of life, or love someone who is, these conversations are here to support you in that process. So be sure to check out the show notes for potential trigger warnings. And whether you're very comfortable with or deeply avoidant of grief and its many responses, you are welcome here. Thank you for being here. And now on to the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Grief Informed Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Garcia, and I'm very, very excited about my guest today. But before she is introduced, I wanted to say that the entire reason that I wanted to start a podcast about grief, of all things, <laughs> is because I wanted to create a space where we could face the cultural aversion to grief and to the process of grief, because I firmly believe that as we are able to hold space and honor our grief and learn how to be with our grief through hearing other people's experiences, hearing from people who know how to do that process well, I believe that we can experience healing and be able to be encouraged by the resiliency of the human spirit. And the person on today (laughs) has that same exact vision and in the work that she does for the last 14 years, my guest, Dusty Sibley. Hello. Hello. (laughs) She is a supervising LPC, a licensed professional counselor with, as I said, 14 years specializing in bereavement with children and teens and adults. Yes. But we were talking very specifically about teens and children. And uh, anyway, I'm grateful that you're here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Um, Having four teens myself, (laughs) every word you say, I'm just sitting and going, yes, it's (laughs) so good. It's so good. Um, But before we begin, can you tell us about your cultural upbringing and background? Yes. Yeah. I grew up in a family of four. I have one brother. He's 14 months younger than me. So we actually kind of grew up together, best friends. Um, So still very close. My mom was... er, is a handicapped bus a but started out in daycare and my dad was an electrician and so I learned from them just the value of hard work but also helping others so once I became old enough I started in babysitting and then moved into daycare and then decided that I wanted to get my master's degree in counseling after getting my um, undergraduate degree in psychology and so that's whenever I started working with people in the mental health field and so I did my internship and practicum and did a contract work and then moved into adults with severe mental illness for about a year and a half and then came back to the field of bereavement after that. Mm. And before I go to the next one, can you tell me specifically about bereavement? What makes that grief? It's very specific. It is. Yeah. So of course, grief can come in all forms, but bereavement is specifically grief due to death. And so that's just very different than any other kind of grief. So it can help to have experience um, with somebody who knows what they're doing in that field. Absolutely. Okay, so my next question to better, uh, to understand, do you know your Enneagram? (laughs) It wasn't really something that I'd ever looked into prior (laughs) to you you entering (laughs) mine and my husband's lives, but we did do the quizzes as asked, and I've done a few (laughs) different ones. (laughs) 
<laughs> and apparently I'm an eight, which was a little surprising to me since I am in the helping field. Of course, I guess people would expect me to be more of one of the helpers, but that was also very high on my list. But the things that I connect to mostly, of course, are justice. I have a, a very strong sense of justice. One of my old interns, I'm used to say dusty for justice. <laughs> and it's very much true. Yeah. Um, but I also really love helping others. And so connecting to that compassion and empathy and some of the other ones are important to me as well. In your in your non-stress point, in the growth point, eights go to two, uh-huh. of which I'm a two as primary, but twos are very connective. And so that came across, which was surprising to me when I first met you, you were in your two. And so I was like, <laughs> oh, she's so a two. And then, um, but when I... I work with your husband, those on the podcast listening. I work with her husband, Brian. And the first week I was there, I was like, "Um, it's very important for me to know (laughs) who I'm working with. Could you take this test? And he had you take it. What's shocking to me (laughs) is that you are both (laughs) eight. So the home is very lively and (laughs) debate is welcome. Yes. Neither one of us have any problems standing up for our point of view. Yeah. (laughs) Of course, in a loving way, mostly. Yes. Yes. And then you, you guys have been together for a very long time. Yes, almost 25 years. So we were high school sweethearts. So we've been married for almost 14. But we were together for 10 years before getting engaged and then a year engagement and now married. Yeah, so even two eights can live together for 25 years and just be absolutely in love. It's great. Absolutely. (laughs) I love that. Okay, so Given that you've been doing this work for 14 years, and I I asked you to try to guess how many clinical hours that was, and you laughed, you're like, that's not possible. It's pretty impossible. (laughs) You've been doing this, which is session after session that are hard conversations. Yes. But to drive that love that you have, tell me why you love doing this work so much. Absolutely. So we see people come in their darkest days, you know, and and of course they feel like it's never going to get better. And when you're in the thick of it, it, that feels like your reality. That feels true. And so, of course, what we do is normalize that and validate it. But we also offer people hope that while it feels like this is the rest of your life, it's not. Mm-hmm. That grief changes, but it also requires us to be intentional with how we manage it. Mm-hmm. So kind of when people say, well, time heals all wounds, they mean well. And right. certainly time does give us space from the event to make it a little bit less raw, a little bit easier to go there. However, just time alone does not ch- fix or change anything. Mm-hmm. We have to actually do the work. Um, like you said, holding space, sitting with it, processing it. And it doesn't mean all in all day, every day, because that is way too much, mm-hmm. way too overwhelming. But it means you can't just not do it. Because it's one of those things that waits for you. And it kind of builds layer by layer until you hit a breaking point. I kind of remind people, teens especially, that um, holding it in works for a while, but it does not work forever. Mm. And it's going to come out in some way. And and sometimes it's going to be a lot more overwhelming and a lot less manageable if we don't actually let ourselves sit and process when we have time and space to do that for however many minutes we can tolerate it. Mm. That's so good. 
So even a slow titrate is better than nothing at all. Absolutely. Yeah. And then so that's kind of the hope that we offer people of, of we sit with people every day and we see them growing, we see them changing, we see them healing. So we know that it's possible. So just kind of being the person on the outside saying as hard as it is and as dark it is as right now, it's not going to stay that way, but it does require some work and that work is hard and it takes longer than what you want it to. Mm, absolutely. That is so true. So dealing specifically with children and teens, I imagine you have to overcome some <laughs> yeah. some uh, mindsets that approach counseling. What, what do you see that you have to overcome when kids are coming in for their first session or even approaching the process? Absolutely. Often, of course, when teens especially are coming, it's because their parent or guardian has said, this has happened and you need to go and you've got to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And um, and it feels like they don't have a choice. And sometimes they've been told they don't have a choice. And so, of course, that automatically sets them at a place of just not being open or willing or interested in doing that. So often when I talk to teens, I I will usually say, I think it was probably your guardian's <laughs> idea for you to be here. And they'll usually <laughs> laugh and say, yes, it is. And so the way that I describe it is just a safe place to come and figure things out. Mm-hmm. That often it can be difficult to talk to people in our everyday lives because sometimes we don't want to worry them or we don't want to upset them or we don't want to hear what they have to say about that particular topic. And so counseling is one of those things that can't make it worse and it might make it better. So usually it's worth it to give it a try. And almost always, once they hear that, that I'm not going to make them do anything that they don't want to do. And in fact, I will advocate to their parents for them if they decide they are not ready um, to do that work because they're the ones in the room having to do it. And it is hard work. And so usually once they know that, they're like, okay, I'll give it a try. And almost always they come back for however long they need to. Kids and teens are actually so naturally resilient. So as long as all of their needs are being met, they have all the same love, structure, boundaries, rules, and consequences. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, they do well, you know, and, and some need counseling, not all. And so what I tell parents, especially when they come in and they say, well, my kid or my teen is not talking to me. And that means they are holding it all in and they are not handling things. I will let them know that certainly that is possible and it does happen. But often it could be maybe it's too new. The death just happened and they're not ready. They're still in shock or disbelief. Or it could be that they have another outlet. Almost always teens would rather talk to their best friend, their boyfriend, their girlfriend, maybe even a teacher or a coach, someone else, not their parent, Mm. as much as their parents want it to be them. It's just often not going to be the case. And so one thing I remind the parents is just because your kid's not talking to you doesn't mean they're not talking to anyone. But also talking is not the only way. For some people, they may be more private or introverted. Maybe they connect more to writing or drawing or music or some other activity. So just kind of, you know, educating both sides that talking can be helpful for a lot of people, but it's not the only way. And so it's more about just setting the bar at healthy. There's not a right or wrong way to do grief, especially, but there are healthy and unhealthy ways. And so kind of educating each person on that, what works for them, because it's going to look different in every person. Yeah. And my mind as a parent went straight to the 
okay, so what am I looking for mm-hmm. that would show there maybe even if they're not talking to me, but they're not really processing it? What what are we looking for there? Absolutely. Another thing that I remind them of is that when a kid is actually holding things in and they're not doing well, even though they're saying they're okay or they don't want help, is it's going to come out in other ways. And so if a kid is saying, I'm okay, or I'm not ready, or maybe I'm not okay, but I'm managing it well enough that I don't need extra and everything is in line with that, I'm inclined to trust and believe them. However, if they're saying those things and everything's on fire around them, then of course we're going to have a different conversation. And so what I mean by on fire is grade, sleep, appetite, attitude, and just overall big differences for a sustained amount of time. Of mm-hmm. course, you're going to see a dip immediately um, or maybe not. You know, it, sometimes it can take weeks or even months to start actually seeing real differences. But it would be more of they're just not functioning well for a sustained amount of time would be when we would revisit this of, hey, I know you said you weren't ready, but here are the reasons why I feel worried about you. I think maybe we should revisit this idea. Mm, I love that. I love that. So when you have parents and caregivers that are approaching that, but what ways do do we as parents and caregivers harm that process for for the teens and the kids. Yeah, it can actually be harmful to force it when you're dragging your kid out of the car and into the counseling (laughs) office, which I have seen. Oh, no. (laughs) Um, It does happen. It just puts everybody off in a bad spot. There's going to be, of course, a lot of tension between the parent and the child. And then, of course, there's going to be tension between the child and the counselor. I have had kids just sit and stare at me. What I tell parents is uh, you can usually get your kid through the door some way or another. You Mm -hmm. cannot make them open their mouth and neither can I. And so also what we don't want to do is burn bridges so that if there ever comes a place where they would be more willing, they're not because they were forced in the beginning. So Mm. it's just having these open conversations at home of what do you need from me? How can I help you? But also still holding them accountable that even when really hard things have happened, we still have rules, boundaries, and consequences because that is the way the world works. There are not free passes. So there's always room for grace and understanding and forgiveness and redirection. Um, However, it can't just be, well, the rules go by the wayside because you're grieving, because they're grieving, and because you feel sad for them because that's not actually preparing them to be able to grieve and function at the same time, which is a goal that I help people with. Right. And, and thinking when you say you've had parents, when I imagine seeing a parent dragging <laughs> a teen unwilling out of that, because I'm not saying I've ever been like that, but <laughs> I know people, okay, maybe I have, but it's, it f- comes from a place of just scared. You're yes. scared. It is. It's love. It's fear. And parents don't know what to do. And they're grieving themselves. And so, you know, another thing that I really encourage parents to do is to take good care of themselves. Mm -hmm. Often we'll hear parents say, if my kid's okay, then I'll be okay. And and that's the way it feels because that's natural for a parent Mm -hmm. to put their kid's needs first. However, especially with grief, it really does directly impact your kid how you're doing. And so Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean not showing your grief, hiding it away, not crying. When people say, well, I've got to be strong. And so kind of what I remind people about that, I think they get it twisted when they say strong, they think it means not 
having emotion or not showing that, Mm -hmm. um, to me being strong is still getting out of bed, even when you don't want to still cooking dinner because the kids need it, still going to your job, going to school. A lot of times this knee jerk of like, well, I've got to stay at home and grieve. That's too much. And, and it's not actually functional. We do have to get back to structure and routine. Certainly we can put in some safety nets of if I have a hard time, here's my safe place I can go, but not just checking out because I had a hard day or not saying, well, this whole day is a wash because I had one really hard moment. What I teach people is how to be able to have that moment just be a moment and recover from it and move forward into the rest of their day. Mm-hmm. And then if another one does, okay, we do it again. And, and you do that however many times you need to as you move through the process instead of just saying, well, I'm just going to lay down and, and not do it. And often I'll hear from parents too, well, I don't have a choice. Um, and that's not giving themselves very much credit. You do have a choice. You could lay down and give up, but you're choosing to get up even though it's hard. So one, of course, acknowledging their own process and doing that in a healthy way. And then also, of course, still holding their kids accountable. What I tell people is whatever the rules were before are still what they are now. There's no reason for those to change. They were there for a reason. But of course, we can validate and acknowledge that this is hard and it's going to be hard for however long. But we do still have responsibilities. We still have to do A, B, and C. And if you continue to do this, this is your consequence. And then following through. Um, And that's a hard part. And so that's why I tell parents, do not say it out of your mouth unless you're prepared to do it. Because kids are smart (laughs) and they remember. And and what it teaches them is that you don't mean what you say. And so then it doesn't actually correct any behaviors that may crop up. And sometimes they do because grief is hard. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it does come out in behavioral ways. Yeah. And that phrase that you said that if as long as my kid is okay I'm okay Mm -hmm. reminds me of how I had to learn you're not okay I'm okay Mm -hmm. or I'm okay and you're not okay yeah or we're both not okay yes was so instrumental in the grief process that learning to hold emotions of my own and also that somebody else is having an experience and that reminded me of as a teen (laughs) they're also realizing that uh, I just remember I lost my mom at um, I was 10 and lost my dad when I was 19 or just turned 20 and I just remember when you (laughs) going sorry rabbit trail in my brain (laughs) yeah but you saying that like keep the consequences keep the rules keep the boundaries the things in place because I remember people giving me what felt like special treatment yeah and I just I was irritated but didn't know why right because I was like I don't want you to change how you're treating me just because you think I'm sad absolutely do you have that do you see that yeah kids don't want to be different they don't want to be special they want to be quote-unquote normal Mm -hmm. and so having things be as normal as possible that a lot of things have changed but a lot of things are still the same and there's safety in that and knowing what to expect and having a routine and having expectations. And so um, that is something that I always encourage from parents. If they're not going to hear anything else from me, they're going to hear that, that it is important to keep that structure because that's what your kid needs. And also that's what the parent needs. There's going to be less testing if they know where the line is. If the line's the line and it's always the line, we don't have to test it because we know what happens when we cross it. If it changes every day, depending on the circumstance, or even depending on the parent's own grief, then of course they're going to test all the time. And so that's another good reason for parents managing their grief. And so often what we'll see is people protecting each other and they'll say, well, I don't want to make other people sad. 
And we hear it from kids, teens, and grownups. And what I remind them of is everybody is already sad because something really sad has happened. And that's normal. Grief is a normal reaction to loss. So it's just acknowledging that. And there's no reason why we can't be sad together at the same time. It doesn't have to have this idea, well, if you're crying, I can't. There's no reason for that. Um, Sometimes that's all you can do is just sit and cry. There are no words that are going to fix and change it, but just being together or if somebody does want words of comfort, that's okay too. But saying things like, I know how you feel, even well-intentioned, it happens from a lot of people. Uh, it's not helpful. Of course, you can know how you feel about your loss. You cannot know how someone else feels about Mm -hmm. theirs. And so just kind of being careful about using statements that are meant to comfort, but sometimes backfire and Mm -hmm. and frustrate people. Yeah. And you had said in a prior conversation that, um, I was saying the best advice that I got after a divorce, which unlike death, but grief specific was, uh, somebody gave me the advice that don't be afraid to cry in front of your, in your, in front of your kids, Mm -hmm. because I, there's this cultural, like, don't, they say that, I mean, if you haven't ever seen your parent cry in front of you or, um, and so I remember doing that and it being so incredibly freeing for my kids to see emotions are valid. Yeah. Emotions are part of this process. And you had a great thing that you said about <laughs> kids know. <laughs> <laughs> kids are smart. They definitely know if mom is crying in the shower or in her right. bedroom. <laughs> and, you know, it actually makes people feel a little bit more worried. And, and I think that's often, of course, why parents are trying to force their kids is because you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And so a lot of times people are going to fill in the gaps with their imagination. And so they're imagining all of these awful things that are happening. And so if we can just be a little bit more transparent uh, with each other of how we're doing, if I'm not okay, but that's just how things are right now. And and I'm not doing anything unhealthy. So there's no reason why we have to intervene. But if Mm -hmm. that changes, I'll let you know, or maybe a parent is seeing the kids doing something unhealthy, and then you're going to directly talk to them. Here's what I'm seeing. This is why I feel worried for you. And just being able to have more honest conversations. And that includes, too, about talking about the person. A lot Mm -hmm. of times everyone is on eggshells and because they don't know how any member of the family is doing at any particular point, it becomes this taboo thing that we just don't talk about because everyone's so afraid of upsetting the apple cart. And so what I encourage people to do is just have it be organic. You don't have to go out of your way to bring up that person every day. But as you think of them or as you have a memory or a thought or a feeling, it's okay to say it. And it's also okay if someone has a reaction to that. And if they say, hey, I don't want to be a part of this conversation right now, that's okay for them to take a break. But it doesn't mean the whole family has to stop talking about it because maybe one person isn't comfortable in that moment. Mm, That is so good. What are some ways that we can, as caregivers um, and, and parents supporting teens, can show up well for them? What are some things that we could do that's very helpful? Yeah, I think it's mostly just letting them know that you are there and available, but not pushing it. Mm -hmm. A lot of times what I'll hear from teens is they just get frustrated that their parent every day is, how are you doing? What's going on? Are you feeling sad? And that's a lot. And so just kind of letting your teen take the lead and, hey, I will come to you if or when I actually need something. Or certainly you can come to me if you see things that I'm doing that are concerning to you, but not having this be like every day, just kind of all the questions. They get tired of a lot of questions. Like, <laughs> this is, I'm like this bearing down on me like there's a spotlight. <laughs> that would be me and my parenting stuff. Yes. Yeah. And it's, of course, it's out of love, you yeah. know, and, and that's why I tell my teens, 
your parent is going to worry if they do not know how you're doing. So it is only going to benefit you by being honest with them. Yeah, stop asking the questions <laughs> if you just yeah, once answer. Yeah. Exactly, right? <laughs> it, if you just say, I'm not having a good day, but I don't want to talk about it yes. and I don't need anything extra, is going to be better than just being sullen and stomping off to your room. Of course, your parent is going to come and ask you about that. <laughs> right. And so just helping the grownups and the teens just have that more direct, honest conversation conversation um, is something that can be helpful. Yeah. And I I had to learn that skill from a professor um, after my dad died and I returned back to classes and Mm -hmm. everybody's so well-meaning, you know, how are you doing? I'm here to support you. Yes. Just walking down the aisle was like, I dreaded it. Yeah. And then he could tell that on my face because he's experienced loss. And he pulled me aside one day and said, Hey, Rachel, all of these well-meaning people, they they love you and they adore you, but it's okay to tell them when they ask how you're doing or what you're feeling to say, thank you for asking. Um, I'm okay or I'm not okay, but I really don't want to talk about it. Absolutely. It was a game changer for me and really helped me to understand coming from a very Southern culture. Yes. It's rude to not answer somebody. Right. So my, my options were either don't go to class. So mm-hmm. I would avoid people or learn how to say this one thing that honors my grief yes. because it can be private, but also I see how you love me and you care for me, but I may need some, you know, I, that you could handle me saying, and they may not, like you said, it yeah. may cause a reaction, but to be able to say, I don't really want to go into it right now is a game changer. Absolutely. And that is one thing that if a kid has been out of school for whatever reason, maybe a death happened over the summer or over a holiday or something like that, that we talk to the parent and the teen about preparing to go back to school because it is scary because teens don't want to be different. And so... They're not sure what to say. And like you said, especially in Southern culture, it's just if someone asks you a question, you answer it, whether it feels comfortable to you or not. And (laughs) so having that phrase, whatever it may be, you know, I appreciate it, but it's not something that I want to talk about or I'm hanging in there or whatever feels true for you. But you don't owe anybody anything. You can only share what you want to. And that sometimes is nothing at all. And that's okay. Um, And also in terms of what do you want your peers or classmates to know about a death coming back. Sometimes kids don't want their school to know anything. And so talking with a parent ahead of time, and then you can communicate that to the teacher or to the school counselor of, hey, this thing has happened, but it's not something they want their peers to know about. Yeah. So it's kind of just having that conversation with your kid before they go back mm-hmm. and making a plan and then communicating to the school what you want that plan to be. Yeah, that's so good. And it made me think of the, the practice of being able to say honestly what's honest and true for you in a moment, but doing it in a way like I, how many grocery store clerks have been like, how are you? And I'm like, I'm stressed. How are you? <laughs> like, I'm, yeah, I'm sometimes that will shut it down if you yeah. give a very honest then, answer. Yeah, they're like, okay, I'm good. You know, just (laughs) let me keep ringing you up. But I'm like, I don't mind answering honestly. Right. I'm not going to be like, here's the reason why I'm stressed. But I'll I'll give you a feeling word. I'm (laughs) I'm mad right now. How are you? Right. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, it's a good practice to have to be able to say what's honest and and trust that others can yeah. either hold it or not. And right. And it feels scary because you don't know how other people are going to respond right. and you're not sure what you're going to say. So just having that game plan can take away some of that fear and anxiety about going back. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what are some of the things <laughs> that others outside of the process of or of the loss yes. have said or can say that might not 
bode well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Often, of course, we'll hear people say, you know, well, just people say the dumbest things. And and it's true. (laughs) We've heard some really dumb things. Of course, almost always it's well-intentioned. Now, sometimes people are just being nosy and they are asking for details that they really shouldn't be asking about just because they are curious or nosy. And Mm -hmm. it's really okay to shut that down. That's not something I'm willing to talk about and just very directly. Um, But of course, when someone means well, and, and you're pretty sure it's coming from a place out of love, it's okay to you say, I think I understand what you mean by that, but that's actually not helpful to me. So things mm-hmm. like, you know, God needed your person or they're in a better place. It was meant to be. I know how you feel. So many words. And, and it's just kind of trying to put a Band-Aid on it because people aren't comfortable with grief and they're not comfortable with other people's sadness. And so they're not sure what to do. And they just want to put a Band-Aid on it and, and keep going. And those words actually end up backfiring a lot. Right. And so that's why I encourage the people that I'm working with if it's if it's someone that you're close to and you really care about and you don't want to just withdraw from them because that's easier and you also don't want to say something mean and hurtful because you've been letting it build for too long and they keep saying things that are frustrating you to just directly say you know I'm pretty sure I know where you're coming from and then that you mean well and I appreciate that however it's just not something that's helpful for me to hear those types of things yeah you said God that what was the first one um God needed them. Yeah. yeah. Right. Who, who needs a dad more than a kid, right. you know, and, and just that's just not how it works. Sometimes things just happen yeah. and, and already it can be a conflicting place with religion and spirituality and and how people feel. So hearing something like that directly about God taking our person away is a very different idea than our person's body was too sick or too injured to keep going and their spirit went to whatever your religious beliefs are. Right. So, yeah, hearing something direct like that can be frustrating to people yeah and make as you said before mm-hmm. um make them angry at god well that, yeah, that was my, be. my experience mm-hmm. of, of people not knowing and saying things that i'm like the implications of that mm-hmm. that makes me angry at who you think right god is in this process for me it's a, yeah. just a very personal and believing they're coming from a, a good place is true um, however, understanding that sometimes we say things because it brings us comfort. Right. And People don't know what to say. So <laughs> yeah, they try to put yeah, a little flowery yeah. thing and then can we move on to something else yeah. because it's just not comfortable. Right. And that might, that sentiment might bring them comfort. Mm-hmm. That might be what they actually think. But to yeah. recognize that not everybody you're saying that to receives it the same way. Absolutely. What's another one? The time, that yes. was a big one. Yes, and and we talked about that a little bit earlier. You know, time heals all wounds. And um, it is something that maybe some people believe. And then on the flip side, there are people who are bereaved and they'll say it never changes. I mean, it you lose never a child. Gets better. How, when does that go away? No. Yeah, exactly. It's a lifetime process, right. but it does change. So the people who say it's never going to get better and people who say that are lying, I think those are people who have just made a choice that... Mm. Either they're not ready to do the work, they're not able, or they don't want to. Yeah. And and that's that's okay for them. But yeah, it's not going to change if you don't do the work. And right. so, especially with things like talking to other people who are bereaved or groups or things like that, I just caution people that not everybody does this in a healthy way. And, and that can feel really alarming to hear someone however many years out saying it never changes, it's never going to get better. It's scary, you know? Yeah. And so hearing that that's not exactly true, you know? Certainly, if a person makes a choice, if I'm not going to do the work, then probably that's true. But not for people who are intentional. If I want to heal, I want to recover. 
I want to carry my person forward, but I don't want to stop living. The way that I put it to people is I like to imagine that whatever our people wanted for us in life to be happy, healthy, well, successful, thriving, all of the things is very likely what they would still want for us. And I don't think that any person who loved us would want their death to be the reason why we never get to be okay again. Mm -hmm. And so not attaching some kind of meaning. Well, what does it mean about me that I had a happy moment or I had a good day or I didn't think about my person today at all? that happens and then that guilt comes in and and they start feeling well what does it mean about my relationship or about me as a person or daughter or whatever and that's not fair and so one thing that I also work with people on is the difference between guilt and regret and so a lot of times we'll hear from teens, especially, uh, well, I feel guilty that I wasn't there, I didn't see them, or I said some really hurtful thing the last time that we talked. And so kind of stepping back from that of, you know, guilt implies some kind of responsibility. You know, you did something intentionally knowing what the outcome would be, and now right. you feel bad about that thing versus I just wish things were different. I wish I had known, or I would have done things differently if I had some way of knowing that this was coming and so, of course, guilt is really heavy and you can't just talk yourself out of it. And so a lot of times it's just identifying the difference between you didn't cause harm to anyone. You don't intentionally do something. You just wish you could have done things differently. Mm. And that's a big difference there. Yeah, that and <laughs> makes such a big difference when you can then grieve. You get mm-hmm. to grieve. Guilt feels like you're just going to stay in a loop. Right. And the recognizing, I just wish I would have had this other outcome would have a release. Yes. Um, yeah. That. Especially in terms of how a death happens. Sometimes people think, well, if I had been there, I could have stopped it or um, some other idea. And, and usually it's going to be more magical thinking that we want to be able to change the outcome. And so we imagine that if we could have done only this thing differently, then our person would still be here. And that's not really reality based. And so kind of helping them that certainly things could have been different, but there's no way to know that. And so it's not really fair to put that responsibility on ourselves to say, well, if only this one thing that my was my job right. it was different, then my person would be here because that's just not factual, especially in situations where there was nothing that could be done differently. And, mm-hmm. and so just kind of having honest conversations about that. And there may be something that maybe we valid. We do feel guilty, actually guilty about this thing. We can still ask forgiveness of our person, even though they're not here. Mm-hmm. It's not the same, but it still can be done. And also extending that same grace and forgiveness to ourselves that mm-hmm. sometimes things happen and nothing happens in a vacuum, especially in a complicated relationship. Things mm-hmm. were the way they were for a reason. And just because our person is not here doesn't change that history. So sometimes it's helping people process all of the things that happen even before the death. And then also, of course, all the repercussions after a death. And the finality of not having the outcome they had hoped for right. even while they were living. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because, of course, as long as a person's alive, there's still that hope that right. something can change. We'll, we'll be different in the future. I've got time to fix things. And unfortunately, that just doesn't always happen that way. So mm-hmm. kind of acknowledging that, yeah, that is a really difficult thing to process. But it's also not fair to put that full responsibility on you, especially if you're a kid or a teen and, and some of these things were more of an adult responsibility. Mm, that's so good. Oh, it's such good work. <laughs> helping them see they're not they're not responsible for that. That's yes. so good. You had mentioned another um, 
platitude from an outsider is the I know how you feel yes. and comparative suffering <laughs> that isn't comparative at all. It's not. And I think that people want to make that connection, like you're saying, that human connection. And so mm-hmm. they want to be helpful. And so well, I know how you feel. I had this person die or sometimes it's even a pet, which is <laughs> right. even less comparable. <laughs> and, and that's why I do remind people that in grief, even if you've had the exact same situation, my dad died in this way, exactly the same as your dad died in this way, it's still not the same. It means something different. And so kind of just, you can connect on the, I know how I felt when my person died. I can only imagine how you feel. I just wanted to let you know that I understand grief and not, I know how you feel because that's a very different sentiment. Yeah. And I love too, when you said that, uh, it was my friend Becky first episode, y'all go listen, (laughs) that was talking about people coming to her and saying, I can only imagine, and and she's like, no, you can't, or I can't imagine, that's mm-hmm. what it was, I can't imagine what you're going through if they've not experienced, and she's like, mm-hmm. no, but you can. If mm-hmm. you think for 10 seconds, close your eyes and just imagine you being yeah. in the situation, you will feel a sense of what this might feel like. Now, mm-hmm. you aren't experiencing it, right. but it could, it could lend to that empathy or sympathy always yeah (laughs) absolutely being able to say I can't imagine what you're going through and Mm -hmm. that that's it's incredibly that seems very difficult what would you say they could say to that um how can people approach others in that moment where they want to say something but they don't quite know what to say and are afraid now after (laughs) listening to us take apart platitudes what do I say (laughs) yeah I mean I think just being direct of hey I know probably a lot of people have said like I'm here if you need me or things like that you know I just wanted to kind of directly know that when I say that I mean it and and you probably don't know what you need right now and that's okay but if you happen to figure it out and it's something I can help with like let me know like I'll actually do that Um, because of course everybody kind of says well call me if you need anything or I'm here for you or things like that and and often I will hear too of people saying well I know they said that but I'm not one I'm not sure if they meant it or two Mm -hmm. they're probably tired of it by now or three they've got their own stuff going on yeah And so I remind them that those things may be true. However, you know, if it's someone that you trust and they have been there for you in the past, there's really no reason to imagine that they're going to just suddenly stop doing that, especially if they've told you that they are there. But you can always give a little disclaimer at the beginning of your, you know, reaching out to your friend and saying, hey, just let me know if this is ever too heavy for you or if maybe it's not a good time for you. And if they say, no, I've got it, then continue on. There's no reason to protect them from your things if they are saying I'm here and I'm ready and I'm able and um, don't take away that opportunity from them to be a supportive person to you. Mm, and that's a skill set. <laughs> you have to practice it. Is it is hard. It's yeah. hard to ask for help, especially for moms. I think they're yeah. just used to kind of doing all the things and managing it. But if it was your spouse and you're grieving and now you're also a single parent and that's not something you could have prepared for, um, then yeah, you do need people. I, I, what I tell you, people need people and, and reaching out when you actually have some ideas. I think in the beginning, there's just so many people in your face and yeah. they're bringing all the casseroles yes. and doing all the things. And, and then things kind of settle down. And, and usually about the time people actually need something is the time when the other people have kind of gone back to their new normal, their lives, and you're still figuring out what your normal looks like. And mm-hmm. so that 
that's the time of, okay, now everybody's gone and I'm looking at life and we're getting back into a routine and now I need this, that, and the other, that would be, you know, the time to speak up and, and let your people know what you need. Yeah. That's so good. Um, what are some ways or things that come up, difficulties or obstacles that are coming up for parents and teens in the process of grief counseling that, that get discussed that have to be addressed? It's usually going to be communication of just having difficulties communicating. And, and sometimes, of course, they're getting frustrated with each other. And so because everything is just so high tension wise that they're just having these angry reactions a lot of times. And so working with the grownups and the kids on when you're feeling some kind of way to communicate that instead of just reacting. So saying, hey, can we press pause on this conversation because I'm feeling really frustrated and then each person has to respect that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it helps to have these conversations when things are calm. Yeah. The way I like to explain it to people is there are things that are working well and we're just going to keep doing those things. There are things that need improvement. Yeah. Okay. Then we can start game planning, problem solving. We don't have to panic or place blame or, or any of those things. I've just start identifying what are the things that need improvement? How do we want to do that? And that's going to be from the parent's perspective, but also from the kid's perspective. You know, obviously the answer was not always yes, but maybe sometimes there's room for um, compromise or being a little bit more flexible depending on what the thing is, but it would require an honest conversation between the parent and the kid. Mm. And you, you mentioned, and also uh, something that comes up is uh, when the parent who's lost a spouse wants to start dating. Yes, that is something that we see a lot that kids and teens especially struggle with. Sometimes it's the timeline because with grief, there is no set timeline. Everybody process it and heals differently. And then sometimes also people may rush into a relationship because they just don't know how to be alone or they don't want to, or they're having a hard time. And then sometimes it's just an opportunity pops up that they don't want to miss out on because now they recognize that life can be short and unpredictable. And so they mm -hmm. don't want to miss out on maybe their next great love story, but that can be hard for kids and teens to process, especially depending on how long it's been. Yeah. I think everyone kind of has in their mind a set time and, and most people it's going to be at least a year, but yeah. sometimes that's just not how it works. And so we will see kids or teens struggling a little bit when their parent is moving forward with someone new. And so it's validating and acknowledging that, yeah, it's hard. Like you want your parent here. You don't want someone else in here being your parent, but yeah. also there's always room for more love and it does not take away your love for your parent. If you love someone new. Mm -hmm. And so kind of just giving ourselves that permission that it's not doing our parent a disservice if we also love someone else in a parental way, or that person does things that your parent used to do for you or with you, but there is no replacing. And right. so that's kind of the thing of making sure that everyone is on the same page, that someone new coming into the family is not bumping out our person who has died. It's just adding in and that we're always going to still talk about our person and still remember them. And that person is still your parent. And, and somebody new coming in does not change that. Mm, which is, I mean, 
Of course, what they would want to hear. Mm-hmm. It might still take time to process, but Absolutely. having the conversation from that perspective is so beautiful. Right. And for the parents not hiding it, you know, yes. of, of just being honest of I am seeing someone new and, you know, I would not bring anyone around you that I didn't trust and, and feel that it's a positive thing. But I understand that this is something that is going to take some time to adjust to and, and kind of being patient with your child as they come to terms with this new thing. But also, of course, always having respect, be a part of it. You don't have to like them or love them, but you do need to be respectful, you know, as things progress. And the hope would be that it turns into a healthy situation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You also, we were talking about the, another difficulty might be dates and holidays and milestones. Absolutely. All of those things, holidays, birthdays, anniversaries, especially, um, you know, just special days can be triggering for people. And so a lot of what we see is just kind of this avoidance of knowing this day is coming, but I don't want to think about it because it's really scary and we don't know what to expect and that fear of the unknown. And so we'll see just that dread and anticipation of the date. And sometimes that means because we're so afraid of it, we're not planning for it and because we don't want it to come. And then the day comes. And of course, it can be more overwhelming if you don't know what you're going to do. So we just talk with people about not too soon because we don't want to borrow trouble by looking too far out at something. But as a day approaches, maybe a week or so, depending on what you want to do. I'm just starting to talk about it of, hey, this day's coming up. Do we want to do anything special in memory of our person? If so, what? And some people don't, and that's okay. Um, But just kind of knowing what you want to do, that way you can have a plan. And then sometimes it becomes part of the day we look forward to of, I know this day is going to be heavy. However, I am kind of excited that we're going to get to release balloons, or we're going to go to their favorite restaurant, or we're going to sit and look at pictures, or or whatever the thing that you choose to do can be helpful. And often what we'll hear is that the dread and the days leading up to the day is actually worse than the day itself. Absolutely. Now, sometimes it's what we expected it to be. And, and the good thing is we know because we've gotten through other really hard days, we know that we can and we will. Um, it's just kind of accepting that it probably is going to be bittersweet and, and a mixture of feelings on that day. Yeah. And and that reminds me, I mean, from experiencing those de- what I call death anniversaries mm-hmm. for my parents as in my young 20s, even, like, there was that avoidance. Or, uh, it wasn't avoidance, but it was like, well, if I'm going to do it, I need to, like, make an entire day of it. Yes. And then as I had small children, and, <laughs> and even now, yeah, it's there have been, been years where that day I will be cognizant of the month. I'm in the month. Yes. Um, for, for me, for sure. But it's a sense of during that week, I will pass the date. Mm -hmm. And I used to feel so much guilt over that until I started to get, that's okay. Like it really, I am no less honoring to them or to to their death or their life Mm -hmm. by the fact that I skipped over it for a day and then remember two days later and I'm like, oh, okay, it was the seventh, you know, like, and today's the ninth. Oh man, I missed that. But being able to, for me, that process was just understanding that it's not, it's not this specific date Mm -hmm. as much as it is just the essence of wanting to honor and wanting to be aware. But if you aren't, that's okay. Right. That's something that can be done anytime, anywhere. A lot of times people feel like, well, I've got to be at the cemetery in order to honor my person. And the way that I kind of look at it is the cemetery is more for the living than the dead. That's where a person's body is. That's not where they are, depending on what your beliefs are. Right. And so you don't have to have this obligation 
of, well, I'm supposed to be there and I'm supposed to be putting flowers on it or, or whatever, because that's what they would want me right. to do. You know, not necessarily. If it brings you comfort and peace to be there, then that's great. Yeah. You know? But if it's something that you don't want to do, that's also okay. Yeah. You can choose what you want to do to honor your person at any given moment. And it's not just about the place that they're buried or the significant date. And so not assigning meaning to, you know, what does it mean about me or about our relationship because this date happened or because I just wanted to try to keep it a normal day or, yeah. or these things of just kind of accepting that things are the way they are. And we don't have to attach a meaning to that, that yeah. if we are at a point in our grief where we are not thinking about it all the time, then yeah, of course those dates could pass and, and it does doesn't mean that right. we're not loving our person. That relationship doesn't change regardless of if we cry all day, every day for the rest of our lives or we never cry at all. That relationship is something that sustains regardless. Right, right. Oh, and the immense freedom. I grew up in a culture where we had, I mean, there's like Sunday afternoon ritual if you go to the graveside, mm -hmm. you must clear off every piece of debris and you must stand there. And I, I remember as a kid going, what are, what am I doing? What yes. are we doing? <laughs> Why, <laughs> Why are we what here? Is this? Um, we're just supposed to do this. And, yes. and, and I just, the ha learning grief could be embodied outside of that one experience was so freeing that just watching a movie that my dad loves was, yes. was, was felt even more connective than standing, but for me, but Absolutely. for somebody else being by that graveside, they are connecting and that doesn't diminish that. But, right. and, but I got to learn individually what feels like being able to be honoring of that time or that space, or if I want to um, there, it can look so different for everyone. Yeah. It's such a personal thing. And so that's why, especially in families of just acknowledging that, that everyone has lost the same person, but right. it means something different to each one. The relationship is different. And of course, every person is different in their process. And so just being respectful of your grief doesn't look like my grief. And it doesn't mean that one is bigger than another one. Right. It's just different. And so that also extends into how do we handle holidays? special days, birthdays, anniversaries, things like that, of just and having a communication. Yeah. Can you touch on that? Because <laughs> Absolutely. You know, sometimes there's this knee jerk reaction of it hurts too much to see these things and I'm just going to put it all away or I'm yeah. going to sell it or donate it or get rid of it. And one thing that I just remind people of with that specifically is once it's done, it cannot be undone. Mm. So just making sure that it is something that you're ready for and also that everyone else in the family is ready for that. So sometimes it looks like, okay, I don't like seeing it. It's too hard, but I'm not ready to get rid of it. So let's just put it in a box and, and put it away. And then we can take our time with that. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the flip side of that is sometimes it kind of becomes almost like a I can't touch or move anything because right. this is where they last put it. And sometimes that can sustain for however long and and so kind of getting to a place of okay I do need to throw away that coke can because it's garbage at yeah. this point, you <laughs> right, know, right. and it, and it doesn't mean that I'm losing part of my person, um, yeah. but it can feel that way. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. So what would you say Overall, if you left us with some parting thoughts, <laughs> <laughs> I have to enunciate that word, 
that you would say you would want people to know who are entering or even anticipating mm-hmm. that that loss? What would you want to say? I think just recognizing that it is a normal process, that, that this is not something that we can fix or, or take away, but it absolutely is something that we can manage in a healthy way. And the goal is always going to be able to heal and recover. And that does not mean that we are forgetting or letting go of our person. It means that we are processing it in a different way. And at some point it becomes not just the only thing that we can think about. It gets relocated to a different part of our brain. And as we move forward in life, we carry our person with us and and we can still do all the same things that we wanted to do, even though that life looks different. And also being patient with yourself that grief is not a fast process. It takes a long time, longer than we want it to. But then also not being critical of ourselves when we start healing. That is the goal. But often I'll hear people come in and say that they are struggling because they are finding moments of happiness or moments of joy. And and it feels like they're doing, you know, a dishonor to their person because they are having those things. And so it's normalizing it that all of our feelings are okay that includes the positive ones. The negative ones, everyone gets kind of comfortable with. They expect it. And then they're kind of surprised by those small moments of joy that happen. And so what I tell people is instead of placing meaning on that or being critical of ourselves for those moments of just being grateful that that moment was better than the others because they're not all going to be that way. And so just setting our hat on healthy. And as long as it's healthy for us and healthy for those around us, we don't have to look so deeply into what does it mean? It just means that we're healing and recovering and, and that's what we want. And I imagine that's what our person would want for us. Mm, that's so good. Wow. <laughs> so much good stuff. I, we could keep talking. Yes. <laughs> Have a whole nother hour. It would be totally fine. I so appreciate you being here. Yes. Every word. And, and again, I want to reiterate, this isn't, bereavement is unique, mm-hmm. but it, you spoke so well about just grief in general. And so if, if for those that are listening, if you were, haven't lost someone, you are still going to experience a lot of this could still resonate um, for a grief process or working through grief or honoring your own grief. Absolutely. You know, our boss even kind of likes to put that out there of really anything that brings any person to counseling in general is likely going to be related to grief in some way, you know, loss of life expectations, loss of job, loss of relationship, um, just so many things. And so it, it definitely does carry over into really anything that a person can struggle with. It's just finding those healthy coping tools, whether that's talking or writing or drawing or your spirituality. There's there's so many things, music. So just kind of finding that thing that is an outlet for you. I think sometimes the outlets can also be a distraction. And so it's that balance of, okay, right now I just need to be distracted because I can't do it. But okay, now I can and I probably should. I do kind of like to explain it like a box of stuff. If you only ever put things in your box of stuff, it is always going to be bursting at the seams. And at some point that lid will fly off and then it can be quite overwhelming. And so if you've got time and space to open up your box and pull a few things out of it and sit with it for however many minutes you can tolerate and process it and and feel, and then you put it back in and then kind of each time you need to revisit your box of stuff you do. But I think what people find is that it's less overwhelming and it's Mm -hmm. more manageable and and getting it to maybe a healthier place. Yeah, that's doesn't go away, Mm -hmm. but the emotional charge around it can shift and become less 
charged. Yeah, it does. It changes as time moves forward. But as more importantly, we are intentional with how we process it, how we manage it. And just kind of knowing that, of course, we're always going to love and miss our person, but it's not always going to feel the way it did when we first lost them or the way that it feels at any given moment in time that it changes. And and that's an important part of the process of not just staying. It's okay to get down. We just don't stay down. It's it's how do we get back up and, and continue functioning and thriving. Right. That is so good. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you for being here. Everybody, thanks for listening. Continue to subscribe, like, share the podcast with people that you think will be encouraged or supported that you know are either going through this process or supporting someone who is and continue to get the word out so we can help shift the culture. (laughs) Thank you.